0: So we're in a series right now. Uh, this is week four. L- last week was a standalone. I, I-, I hope you guys enjoyed having Yonatan uh, Weiss with us. It was kind of a fun night of Q&A and hearing from someone from a- another part of the world. Uh, this is week four in a series looking at questions God asks. And we're-, we're kind of looking at the idea of, you know, like Adams and Jacobs and Job's. And tonight we're gonna look at a question directed at, at David. But when God asks us questions, there seems, they seem to be at critical moments in our life. Maybe it's a time to make a decision, something's going on, but, but questions stop us. <laughs> questions make us go, hmm, I need to reflect on that. I was thinking about kind of a funny question that my, my daughter, uh, Serena asked me, she's 12, and uh, this was like a couple weeks ago. And we, it was after Wednesday night. We had come home, and uh, she was like standing in the kitchen at, kind of by the table where she does her homework, and she was just like puzzled looking. And she goes, hey, Dad, I got, I got a question for you. And I go, yeah? She goes, it's a question about church. I'm like, okay, this is probably, you know, you want to talk about paedo-baptism, you want to discuss the, you know. She goes, you know, you know the drinking fountain? So there's the regular thing you press, button, but then there's this other one, and it's kind of like, a, you know, you know, like the faucet thing that hooks up like this. Have you seen that? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a little faucet that goes like this. For, she goes, um, why do they make it like that? Because it's so hard to drink from. And I go, that's to fill up water bottles. And she goes, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> and Her hair was all wet. Apparently she'd been like, <laughs> trying to drink out of it. But it was so, like the whole church ride home, she was like, why would they do, like, why would they make the faucet like that? She was just perplexed, utterly perplexed. She's thinking about it, and this question just stopped her in her tracks. Why did they make a drinking fountain like that? Um, it was kind of a funny, a funny moment, but the, the, these questions that God asks us, like I said, they can be instructional moments, like I want you to learn something. They can be revelatory moments. I want you to discover something that you have maybe been blind to, or that, or that you haven't seen. They can be moments of, of pushing us to look deep within, you know, like introspection. Sometimes I'm not very good at that, and I'm kind of like numb to things happening inside me. And a question can make me like dig down deep, and really kind of explore. Or, or sometimes questions make me think about the direction I'm going. Hmm, is this the right path? <laughs> Am I making the right decisions that will lead me to where I want to go. Tonight we're going to look at this statement made to David. portion of the scripture is in your bulletin. You can read along. I would encourage if you have a Bible, open it up or turn it on because we're going to be kind of jumping like to the chapters, two chapters before. So we'll kind of be jumping around a little bit there. So that that might be kind of helpful. But this question comes to us, um, it's in the the book of Samuel, the original books of Samuel, it was one big scroll. We've cut it up because it's hard to have this long of a thing on two scrolls since we have 1 Samuel and Second Samuel, but it's one unified writing. This comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and like I said, we're going to kind of jump back to 5 and 6, but um, I want to kind of read, read this here, but l- let me just make a couple kind of intro comments. If, if you think of the story of the Bible, like where it starts, page 1, Page two, page three. If you think about where it's going, almost like a hike, like in the Rocky Mountains, 2 Samuel 7 is like getting to one of the peaks. You know what I mean by that? It's like, if you were to like graph kind of like the high moments, the important moments, this would be like at one of the very top moments, this chapter right here. Um, It's it's almost like if you were reading the Bible for the very first time, and you didn't know where the story was going, it's a brand new story for you. Everything that was set up from pages one on it almost feels like it's concluding, like it's wrapping up here. It almost feels like, oh, this, this is the end. The credits are gonna roll. I guess I guess this is, this is the end of the story. Like That's how momentous this chapter <clears throat> is right here. So think about kind of the story a little bit. Um, page one and two, humanity is given this world packed with potential and told to be vice agents for God, his representatives to, to lead and have dominion and rule. And they decide to rule their own way. They rebel. And so God goes about this rescue mission to rescue the human race. And he decides to do that by picking one man in particular, Abraham. And he he does something unique. He he makes a covenant with Abraham, which is a key idea. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, we're going to partner together to fix this. It's very vague. How are you going to do that? But he makes some of these promises to Abraham. He says things like, I'm going to give you a great, now think about these, and we've talked about these before. I'm going to give you a great name. He says, I'm going to give you a great land, like a location. And he says, even your seeds, meaning your children, they're going to be kings. They're going to come out of your seeds, out of your children. Of course, he's saying this to a man who has no children, which kind of creates some of the challenge in what he's telling them. But then ultimately, he says, I'm going to bring back my blessing. And if you remember from a couple weeks ago, he said God's blessing never comes without his presence. God's presence and blessing are like two sides of the same coin, okay? I'm going to bring back my, my blessing, so therefore his presence somehow, to the entire world. So everything that I just talked about feels like it's wrapping up right here, Okay, so listen for it. Let's let's read along. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's kind of a long passage, so stick with me here. We read, after the king, this is David, was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God, which was a symbol of God's presence, of where God's presence was here on earth, remains in a tent. So this prophet Nathan said to the king, hey, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying this, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. And here's our key question for tonight, if you want to underline it or make note of it are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? He says, I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought up the Israelites out of Egypt. He's talking about the Exodus when he traveled with them. Um, I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever have I moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then tell my servant David this is what the Lord Almighty says I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel I have been with I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies before you Now I will make your name great where have you heard that before We just talked about it Covenant with Abraham, okay, okay, this is, this is like a hyperlink, okay? You read this, this is like a hyperlink back to something else. You get, like you gotta have this in the back of your mind, because he's, he's drawing the story forward. Um, he says, uh, like, the great name, like the names of the great men on earth, he says, I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them. That's garden language. What does that sound like? Yeah, it's back to the garden. He's, this is, and of course, the garden is where God's presence is. I'm gonna plant them a place so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning, he's referring to the exodus when they were in slavery, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you, David, rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Well, wait a minute, we just read that David just finished building this beautiful cedar palace. He's got his own house. <laughs> and God says, I'm going to build you a house. What do you, what do you, I, got, I just got one. <clears throat> when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring or its seed. Now, what does that sound like? Again, these are hyperlinks. Yeah, these are, this is the same seed, everything from the garden, but also to Abraham, he said, remember, through your seed, I'm going to raise up uh, to, to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Oh, what does that sound like? Again, these are, these are all echoes. Like you have to be hearing the story behind it. Abraham's seed, he said, remember, you're, you're going to, I'm going to have kings in your seed. Um, he is the one who will build a house for my name. So he's saying, you're not going to, you're not going to build a house for me. Okay, but, but one of your descendants is going to do that. He says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, and then he introduces a new concept of relationship. I will be, he's speaking of David's son, I'm going to be his father and he will be my son. And then he says, when he does wrong, when, when he rebels, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. He's gonna say, he's saying, I'm gonna allow other people to have access. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm no longer gonna protect him this way, but I'm actually gonna allow other people to punish him. But my love, and he uses the same, the, the chesed, the, the covenant love that he used with Israel, used with Abraham, used with Israel, so it's kind of furthering this covenant idea. My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from King Saul. Remember the King Saul story? Um, he says, uh, whom I remove uh, from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And then verse 18, we won't read the rest of the chapter, because, but, but, but it's basically David saying, King David went before the Lord and just said, wow, like sovereign Lord, I can't believe you're doing this. I can't believe you've chosen me. Like a mere mortal. I'm, I'm broken. I'm messed up. He knows how flawed he is. And he's just like, man, I can't believe it. And then the rest of the prayer is just like, God, please really do that. <laughs> please be faithful to the promise. Please hold to your word. Please do what you said you would do. But he's, he's he's absolutely enthralled. And that's what I mean by this. This seems like one of the high points in the in the history of Israel. Again, on that graph. Because it it sort of feels like phew, end of the story. This is like return of the king and like he's ruling and everything's great and life is life is good. But before we go on, let let's just go back a bit and see how we how we got here, okay, to this to this chapter because again, to the to the Jewish mind, this element right here that happens in chapter 7 is one of the most important core things that like influences all of life and all of history, future, future on this covenant with David and his seed. So I just want to look real quickly how we got here. So go, go back in your mind with me a little bit. After, after the Exodus wandering, the Israelites um, enter Canaan, right? Enter the, the, the promised land. And they're told by God, you need to drive out the Canaanites because their wickedness has reached a level at which they're like irredeemable, but you need to drive them out he says, he says, and I'm going to give you the land, but then it comes with a warning. He says, if you start behaving like the Canaanites, I will drive you out. It's not that I love, it's not that, like, you're better. <laughs> if you behave like them, exact same consequences. <clears throat> and so, problem is, is that Israel fails to fully drive out the Israelites from all of that. So remember, the 12 tribes, this is all the Israelites, 12 tribes come into this promised land of Canaan, and it's like divided up. Like, okay, Simeon, your tribe, you get that area. Benjamites, you get this area over here. But again, they, they failed to really drive them out. <clears throat> and so um, finally, uh, Israel falls into this place of like, they start kind of behaving like them. God sends oppressors. The book of Judges, you ever read the book of Judges? It's just this like vicious cycle. of like they worship God and then God delivers them and then they forget God and God sends oppressors. Then they you know, repent and worship God and he frees them. and It's just this like absurd repetitive cycle again and again and again. And so finally Israel says, okay, we want a king. Maybe that's our problem. If we had a king like all other nations, we wouldn't have this problem. And, and so they demand a king and, and of course they, they get King Saul but even when they get King Saul, you have to realize the Israelites are a fractured people group. Remember how I mentioned the tribes, the 12 tribes? They're very tribal. They're not a united kingdom. Like, my tribe is not gonna help your tribe. And In fact, my tribe will exploit your tribe if it helps my tribe. So these tribes are very much like, yeah, no, this is my people group. You're not, you're not my people group. It's, it's us and them mentality. And so Israel wasn't even able to function at a high level for what God called him to do because of this deep fracturing in this body, this human makeup of, of people who they were called to be. There was, no, there was no kingdom. It was just a fractured, divided group of people. And so in chapter 5, King Saul has died. David has become king. But even David, he's, he's king for seven. Remember, he was promised, you're going to be king of all my people. It's been, it's been a long road. He finally becomes king. Saul's dead. But he's still ruling in Hebron, which is like way down south in Judah, for seven years. He's like, I, I, I thought God said, it was, you know, it was he's going to pull all the people together. And then surprisingly, um, all of the elders from all of the other like 11 tribes come to David, and they go, we want to make a covenant with you. We want to make an agreement. <laughs> We will recognize you as our king. And so they work out the terms of the deal, of the situation. And they make this covenant together about what their relationship will be like. And um, they're, they're finally going to be united. And so what David realizes, strategically, he's got to do something. He can't stay down in Hebron because that's my tribe. <laughs> well, the 11 other tribes aren't going to be too excited about my capital. So David has to find a new capital. So guess, guess what capital he goes for? Jerusalem, yeah. You've got in your, in your uh, I think, it, did you guys get one of these handouts, inserts? A couple pictures here. Take a look at this, um, and I'll also ask for a couple images to be put up on the screen here in just, in just a second. But let me, let me say a couple things about, about kind of the why. So they, they marched on Jerusalem. The, uh, Jerusalem is controlled by the Jebusites, Okay, the Jebusites is just, a, is just one of the Canaanite groups and they have Jerusalem. It's a stronghold. It's a very well fortified city. Uh, some other places, actually a couple of the tribes tried to attack it, tried to take it over and they failed. So it's a very well protected area. And we read this, if you wanna turn back to chapter five, um, 1 Samuel five, verse six, we read the king, this is David, and his men marched to Jerusalem, attacked the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you won't get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So he he renames it. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft. Now here's the first question. Why Jerusalem? Why, Why did David have to go up to Jerusalem to try to, Uh, capture that. Um, Like I said, this this sort of, this area, Jerusalem, remained a a foreign enclave for like 200 years after the Israelites were already in the land. It was a very well-fortified area. And there's a couple of reasons why this location was important. Number one, if you look at it on a map, it's kind of in the center of everything. Geographically, that kind of makes sense. But it also hadn't been conquered by any of the other 12 tribes. Think of it like Washington, D.C. Which one of the states controls Washington, D.C.? Okay, you need civics class? None, okay? It's, it's this independent place. That's, that's what this was. No one had control of it yet. So he thought, okay, if I go get a place that no tribe has, like, oh, that's ours, then right there, he, he's using strategic um, thinking to say, how can I get the allegiance of these 12 different tribes. And so that's what he does. It's this politically neutral city. Um, also, another thing is that it's one of the few places where there's a water source. In fact, can you put up image um, number six, if you can? Uh, so this this is the geography of what it was before there's really any building going on at all. The purple piece of land that comes out, that's, that's what, that's, the ancient Jerusalem. That's what David conquered, what, where the Jebusites had their walls up. This obviously doesn't have the walls, but this gives you the geography of the land. And it's a, it's a great place, because on three sides, it has natural valleys that protect it, and it had large walls. On the right-hand side of it, kind of right in the middle, there's a, there's a natural spring. It's called the Gihon Spring. And so it made for a perfect place, because if you, as long as you kind of keep that in the walls... It, even if someone tries to siege you, you've, you've got your own water. You don't have to go outside of the walls. It's believed very possibly based on what David says here. We don't know how we got in because no one had been able to get in for 200 years. Somehow, but he mentioned something about some water source. So it's very possible that he knew of some way outside the city walls to get into the city. In fact, if you go over there today, they're, they're, they've, they're excavating that whole area. and You can go down underneath and there are these caves and caverns. <laughs> And so people talk about maybe that's how he and his men got into this city. <clears throat> but they, they get it. It's a, and if, here's what I want you to see. It's a small, small area. Um, go to uh, image, slide number seven, please. This is a slightly, it's kind of panned out a little bit, um, shows kind of the, all of the area surrounding it. And basically what you're going to see is that this piece of land, the purple part here, number seven, don't have number seven. Okay, that's all right. Um, <clears throat> this is about 11 acres. It's very, very small in comparison to the rest of it. Um, it's, it, can, it can house about 3,500 people. It's a very, very small area. You see on your, on your um, oh, that's the image right there that I was looking for. It's in your bulletin. I guess you could just look down. Um, so that image on the bottom, do you see where those kind of white lines are? Those are the current walls of the modern-day Jerusalem. That's where they are. To give you an idea of how small Jerusalem, ancient, or the city of David is a better way to talk about it. The city of David actually was And yet it's a strategic area. It's a high point. And it's not really until later on Solomon, who when he actually builds the temple, that square right above that little purple area, that becomes the the temple square. And as you see the image right above that one here, this shows what Jerusalem would have looked like in first century world in Jesus's time. Now, if you notice the top right-hand side, see where it says City of David? Look how small that is. Do you see how tiny it is? It's a, it looks like a banana. It's like a sliver. <clears throat> so that's the city of David. That's what he captures. And I've, again, things grow from there. But just to give you an idea as to what, what kind of, when we talk about ancient Jerusalem or the city of David, it gives you an idea as to what it, what it looks like here. But what David is doing is, is he's forging a new empire that has never existed. And this is about 1,000 BC, okay? It's like 1,000 years before Christ. But he's forging this new empire. Let me read for you chapter five, verses nine through 10. David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. And so got that name. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now, one thing that's really interesting, <clears throat> right after it says he took, up, he took up the fortress, there's a comment made by the author, and he wants us to see something. Ancient authors um, had a couple different unique ways of trying to draw readers' attentions to things. Um, one is by this idea of repetition of language. Anyone here in, like, advertising or marketing? Advertising, marketing kind of area? okay. I've heard, I don't, uh, like I've heard by experts, that in marketing and in advertising, you have to hear like the name of a product like six times, I think it is, before you remember the name of the product. So just like try, like next time you hear a a radio commercial or a TV commercial, listen, you know, they'll say, oh, Colgate's wonderful. People love Colgate. Don't you enjoy using Colgate? You know, they say the name, like I said, at least six times is what the research shows, I think, in order before you kind of go, hmm, Colgate like before it kind of lodges in your head. That's kind of the idea. Ancient authors would do that. Let me read for you some verses that are are peppered, scattered through this passage. Um, I, I think they're gonna be up on the side screens. And see if you can guess what the Colgate is, okay? One of this is a First Samuel sixteen eighteen. One of the servants answered, "I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking man. And the Lord is with him." First Samuel eighteen twelve. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. 1 Samuel 18, 14. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. 1 Samuel 18, 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, 2 Samuel 3, 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. Uh, David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. 2 Samuel 7, 3. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord your God is with you. 2 Samuel 7, 9. God says... I have been with you whenever you ha- wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before now. Now I will make your name great, like all the great men of earth. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> you can't miss that. Even, even the see, th- these are the signs that the ancient author is these are the breadcrumbs that the ancient author is leaving for you to see, because he wants you to be reminded of this key theme that is. Echoing through God's story as he covenants with people. What is our true need and what is it that God ultimately wants? Yeah, to be with you. That's humanity's true need. You will not flourish unless you, have, unless you live the with God life. And what is it that God is ultimately moving for and working toward? God with us which makes sense remember we said presence is always connected to blessing those two things are there god's desiring to move and so we'll, now we'll come back to that right down make a mental note of it but we're going to come back to that to that concept here the author actually also introduces a slight problem in verse 13 of the same chapter it says after he left hebron David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him and then it lists a whole, a whole bunch of those and it just goes on. Here's the problem, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 17 is, is the royal law of what a king is supposed to do and be like, okay? Listen to this, Deuteronomy 17 verse 15. This is God's statement to Israel saying if you're gonna have a ruler, a king, This is the rubric. Be sure to appoint over you a king that Yahweh your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For Yahweh has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What is it? Yeah, but it's interesting. The author just sort of inserts this little statement, right, and just goes on. And it's almost like, is this is this hints of a future problem? Because it looks like everything's going great. He's with God. He's blessed. Things are going awesome. And yet the author just drops in one little thing and just kind of moves moves on. It's interesting. Some some commentators point out typically when you see wives and concubines in scripture, it's always wives first, concubine second. This is reversed, that the author says concubines and wives, and authors, some, some critics think that it's, it's this sort of a literary critique of a dangerous tendency in David, that David amidst all of the blessing, amidst all of his wonderful life, amidst all of things going well, going wonderfully, that he has a tendency to accept the trappings of the typical Near Eastern King, even though he's blessed, even though he's following God in many respects, which, which makes me wonder if, if David is capable of that, is it possible that I am blind to some dangerous tendency to accept some trappings of my culture? You know what I mean by that? Like, I wonder what you would think about it. I wonder if you were to write something now. What, what do you think, if you were in danger of being blind to to some of the cultural trappings of being a 21st century Westerner, post-Enlightenment American. (laughs) What what might be some of the trappings that I'm just blind to, but there's still danger. There's a seed planted there in my life that could be destructive. So verse 17, the Philistines hear that the nation has been uh, united under David, They were fine with David when he was, you're down there and you guys are split up and you guys are all broken, that's fine. But as soon as the Philistines realize that they're one people, they get kind of freaked out. And they go, we gotta go after David, we gotta stop this. We we can't keep the people from being united. We know that that is dangerous. And so uh, David goes out to battle before them. But Now here's one of these good, there was a seed planted of kind of, that's not good, that's not good. Before David goes out to two critical, huge battles, he stops and he goes, I better ask God what to do. (laughs) He inquires of God before running into battle. And see, the author wants you to see something, that David's kingship, it's characterized by the importance that he places on seeking God's will before he rushes into big decisions. Because that's really important, because if you remember, who was the king who came before him? King Saul. King Saul was characterized by the opposite of that absolute opposite of that so he's holding him saying look at this man this guy's this guy's different here so so david wins these two critical battles um david decides to go to in chapter six he says man i got i got jerusalem i won these two battles i'm gonna bring the ark because i got a new capital remember the ark of the covenant i'm gonna bring the ark here and so do you remember what happens it's just kind of it seems like a weird story but, it, long story, he basically says, yeah, let's, let's bring the ark, and we're just told, it says, they took the ark, and they put it on an ox cart, and right there, the reader should be like, ox cart? You ever seen, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know how to carry the ark. Did they carry it on? No. There are, like, poles that go through it, and the priests have to carry it. When the Philistines stole the ark, they put a, they used an ox cart. So, he's just, I, I don't need to do it exactly the way God told me to do it. And so he puts it on this ox car and it starts to fall and this guy reaches out to like support it and he's, he's killed, right? Because he comes in contact with like the hot spot of God. And so what, and, and it says David got like really angry, like ticked off. He was frustrated by this, by God responding this way and he, he's angry. So it, it's like right back to back, he makes a wise decision, he seeks God, he makes a foolish decision, <laughs> That's kind of how our lives are, aren't they? Like, our lives can be a mixture of, man, I can make a really good decision, or, like, really wise, really, and then I'm just an idiot, you know, and I make a foolish decision. But what I love is it's God's still with him amidst it all, amidst the good and the really foolish decisions. And then David says something really interesting. He says, uh, he's worried, he realizes we didn't take the holiness of God seriously. And so in chapter six, verse nine, he says, he has this great question. He says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He's feeling the tension. The presence of God is my good. I need it. But uh, it's dangerous because I'm flawed and I'm broken. I need it. And yet if I get it, I might be a dead man because <laughs> I'm so messed up. So he's, he's bringing up some, that, that question there brings up tension to the whole story. God says, you need my presence. Be careful, it could kill you. Whoa, what? You know what I mean? Like, ha, that seems problematic. How are we gonna do this sort of thing here? And so um, he comes to, and, and let me just say a word about the whole concept of the ark coming to Jerusalem. He, he finally does bring it there. Um, Jerusalem, the whole concept of Jerusalem in the Jewish mind changes. It's now thought of as like the mountain of God. Because remember, the ark is like God's seat. And so the the whole concept of Jerusalem becomes now like that's the hot spot of God. If you want to go meet with God, if you want the with God life, it's got to be centered around this location right here. So the ark of the covenant is now in Jerusalem, and so Jerusalem becomes this sort of meeting place between heaven and earth. It's like if, if the veil between heaven and earth is thin anywhere, it's thin here in Jerusalem is, is the concept. Um, Psalm 78 describes it poetically. It says, but he, God, chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the highest, like the earth that he established forever. Jerusalem becomes almost like the fulcrum, the center of of the universe. It's in, let, me, let me read for you. There's some kind of fantastical language. It sounds really weird to our ears, but I think you'll understand why. This, this is how some of the Jews began to understand this location, the city. They said, Zion is the place from which the world was created, as the point from which the primary ray of light emanated, and as on the only mountain to stand above the deluge of water is also the highest point in the highest land. It is the center of the center and, and which all the rest of reality takes its bearing. It's like true north, it's saying. Now, you read that and you're like, okay, it's kind of fantastic language. You know, why do they do that? They do that because what they're saying is, what other language can I use to speak about the very presence of God? Like, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to have language to say how fantastic it is that the presence of God is there. So chapter seven, here's, here's where we get back to it. David has conquered the city, uh, made it his residence. God has given him rest from his enemies. And what does David decide to do? He's thinking about his beautiful palace. He decides that I want to build a place for the ark. And so David tells Nathan, the prophet, he wants to build a house, a symbol of God's presence. Um, in fact, in Psalm 132, it's, it's represented in this poetic way that it says, it says, Uh, I will not enter my house or go to bed. I will not allow sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. And of course, first Nathan says, yeah, do it. God's, God's with you. And then of course, God speaks to him that night as we read and God reverses the plan. He says, no, you won't build me a house. Instead, I will build you a house. And of course, this is another one of those critical moments See, when a prophet spoke to Saul and said God said no," sometimes Saul had already made up his own mind. well i 'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so the question is, what kind of person is David going to be? I don't know about you guys. Oftentimes I will as, as a pastor, have, have people who will come to me and, and sit down and say, "Hey, um, I need to make or you know I want to know, is this a kind of a biblical choice?" And of course, ma- many of the choices we make in life they're they're not like moral or immoral they're just sort of i don't know let's weigh let's you know think about it, it might be wise it might be less wise good it might be better but sometimes they're like act, actually like immoral decisions and they're like what should i do and when we look at scripture and we say well, god says this is outside the bounds of it and then they go okay let me see if i can talk to someone else <laughs> i'm serious sometimes it's 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 about a marriage situation i want out uh, do I have grounds? No, you, you really don't. doesn't mean you stay the way it is. We've got a lot of work to do. And, uh, okay, let's see here. Are there any other pastors that I can speak to? Because, see, I'm, I'm not wanting to know what God says. I'm just wanting someone to validate what I already think. If you don't have friends in your life that are prophetic in this sense, meaning they tell you the truth, that's what a prophet does. If you just have kind of yes men in your life, you're on a crash course. Um, don't find people in your life who will hold up truth to you, even when it's really uncomfortable. You absolutely need that. And of course, the amazing thing here is we find out in this chapter that that David is not like Saul. He he says, okay, I won't build it. I won't build the house. Because of course, it would reflect upon him. Whose temple is it? It's Solomon's temple. It could have been David's temple. (laughs) But he let that go. Okay, I won't do it. As we said earlier, this event in this chapter, it becomes like a constitutional text in all of future Israelite thinking. God here, he actually makes a covenant. Remember, that's a huge deal. He made a covenant with Abraham. He, he reinforced that covenant with his seeds. Now he's coming to David, and he's pushing forward the covenant. He's defining it more and more He's saying that he, God, will establish a throne for David's descendants forever. He will enter into a relationship with David's descendants. That's like a father and a son. So how does it go? Well, Solomon builds a temple for God. It's beautiful. Um, Solomon's heart kind of begins to grow cold. He falls away. He makes a lot of the same mistakes his dad made. His son, Rehoboam, his heart grows pretty cold cold to the sun and falls away. And just like God promised David, he said, I'm going to discipline them using other people. And so God brings in the Assyrians, this powerful nation that's growing in the east, and they come in and they take over those northern tribes. Remember, they're all fractured now again. He takes over the northern tribes, and about 150 years later, Judah and those kings, Same thing, hearts are cold, hearts are hard. Another new nation, Babylon, comes in and destroys the temple, (laughs) the hot spot of God. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision where he actually sees the presence of God lifting up from the temple and and going east into Babylon, which is interesting. God says, I'm gonna go be with my people. Even even, even when he's disciplining them, (laughs) I'm gonna go be with my people, that's, that, that's an interesting common theme that we keep seeing. And 50 years later, this people are released and they come back and Zerubbabel begins to build a, a second temple and it's pretty shabby. It's not that <clears throat> nice looking. And then 20 BC, Herod the Great says, we're gonna do this right. And so he builds this beautiful, massive temple that you have see a little bit of a picture there on your handout. But here's the point. God's full presence could never be fully contained in a building. And Solomon knew this. When Solomon built the temple, he said, God, David, my father instructed me to do it, but uh, you know, all of heaven and earth can't contain you. How am I gonna build a building for you? But beyond that, remember God's presence, even his mediated presence, it's dangerous because we're so weak. It's like getting too close to the sun. It's dangerous. Isaiah chapter 57 one of the prophets in the middle there in the middle time he used these words he says for this is what the high and exalted one says he who lives forever whose name is holy I live in a high and holy place that's the mountain but he says but also I live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit oh not just the high holy place to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Psalm 24, some language from David, he says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? That's Remember, it's at the top of the mountain, the temple. Who may stand in its holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by false gods. Lift up your heads, you gates. He's talking about Jerusalem as a city. Lift up your heads, you gates, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord almighty, he is the king of glory. And Zechariah 9 picks up on it. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter, Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, here's the amazing thing Jesus came, and it said that he tabernacled amongst us, John chapter 1. He tabernacled. That's the old temple. <laughs> he templed among us. Jesus claimed to be greater than the temple, Matthew chapter 12. One time in in John chapter three, Jesus is traveling through Samaria. That's the capital of those northern tribes in the ancient world. He's traveling through Samaria, and he he encounters a woman, and he says, "Would you get me something to drink?" And she says, "Why are you talking to me? You're a Jew." And he says, "If you knew who's asking, you'd ask me for drink, and I'd give you water. You never thirst again." She goes, "That sounds fantastic. Give it to me." And he says, "Why don't you go get your husband?" And she's ah. Uh actually, I'm not married. And then he calls out some things in her life. I know you're not married. You've been for like five guys. And he gives her like the rap sheet of her life. And she goes, oh, like this guy, how does this guy know about my life? And then she says this in verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Then she said, our ancestors worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, this is in Samaria. Our ancestors worship on this mountain. Um, But you Jews claim that the place where you worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, Mount oh, Gerizim nor in Jerusalem. What? You Samaritans worship what you don't know, we worship what we do, for salvation is from the Jews, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What about location? In spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must, must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, look, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain it all to us. Jesus said, I, the one who'm speaking, to you and He." <laughs> See, when Jesus died on the cross, that thick curtain in the temple keeping everyone out from the holy of holies, the hot spot of God. We're told it was torn from top to bottom from a place you couldn't reach by human hands from top <clears throat> to bottom. Saying this, this, this hot spot of God, you no longer need to go to Jerusalem. You need, no longer need to go to the temple. Before Jesus left the earth, he told his disciples, he said, go wait in Jerusalem and I'm gonna send the spirit and of course, we know this as Pentecost. And you remember in the book of Acts what happens? You remember the description of it? They're in the room. You remember what happens? Loud. This is like loud wind, almost like a storm. Again, these should be hyperlinks. <laughs> and then it says, fire rested above every single individual. Now, where did we see that before? Where's the first time that the Israelites encountered God? by a mountain, Mount Sinai. There was storm and fire on the top of the mountain and it was God's presence. And he says, be careful, don't come too close. And then when they built the tabernacle, there was a pillar of fire that rested over it. Why is that? Because it was the very presence of God. Well, wait a minute, there's not one thing of fire, there's multiple, they're over every single person. What does that mean? Have you thought about that? It means that the very hot spot of God the presence is now with every single individual who claims the name of Jesus. It's not one piece of fire, it's over every single one. What this is saying is that you are a little miniature temple walking around. I, I wonder how many of us think, I don't know how often I think, of, I am a little mini temple of the very hotspot presence of God walking around. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you, temp- and, uh, you together are that temple, you together, corporately. 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received You are not your own. That's an interesting thought, especially for those of us Westerners, right? Individualism. Ephesians 2.21. In him, the whole building is joined together and raised to become a holy temple in the Lord. So here's what I would ask you before we take communion here in just a second. This reality, if this is true about you, God says it is. He knows more than I do. If this reality is true about you <clears throat> and about me, my question is, what is God asking you? What questions is he asking you about his building process that he has going on if you're a temple? What, what things in your life is he saying, um, remember, you're not your own. I want access to that. I want control of that. Remember, this is a sacred endeavor. You're a sacred endeavor. What, what I'm doing in your life is a sacred thing. Are you, are you messing that up in any way? Are you restricting God's spirit from actually his building process in your own temple? Because to be honest, I asked this question myself this week, and I had a couple of things that I wrote <laughs> that came to mind and I felt kind of convicted by that I'm like, yeah there are some things when I think about it that way. When I think about the very hot spot of the presence of God is here. And what am I doing? Huh. And again, it's it's not a condemning thing because God's saying, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I love you. I want to be with you.